Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State, with a joint appointment in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize, and in 2020 was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. His latest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet, and he's the co-author with former Prime Minister of Australia Malcolm Turnbull of an article at The Guardian, How Australia's Electoral System Allowed Voters to Finally Impose a Ceasefire in the Climate Wars. We will discuss how people power can trump the malignant propaganda of the Murdoch press and how ranked-choice voting is the easiest and most workable way to revive our democracy and end the paralysis of partisanship. Then, with President Biden in an address to the nation calling on Congress to do something about the epidemic of gun violence massacres in this country after yet another mass shooting at a hospital in Tulsa, we'll examine how other countries have responded to similar horrific events and adopted measures that have radically reduced gun deaths. Joining us from Sydney, Australia, is Philip Alpers, a professor and founding director of GunPolicy.org, a global project at the University of Sydney School of Public Health, which compares armed violence, firearm legislation, and injury prevention across 250 jurisdictions worldwide. We'll discuss his article at CNN, This is what happened when three nations that experienced mass shootings did something about it. Then finally, with Vice President Harris today announcing that the White House is forgiving $5.8 billion in student debt for 560,000 students defrauded by the defunct Corinthian Colleges, we'll speak with David Halpern, a senior fellow at Republic Report. He was previously founding executive director of the American Constitution Society, White House speechwriter and special assistant for national security affairs to President Clinton and counsel to the Senate Intelligence Committee. We'll discuss his latest articles at Republic Report with debt relief for Corinthian students finally here, time to stop funding predatory colleges, and new University of Phoenix head ran college that closed after fraud suit, and what Biden might do to relieve the $1.7 trillion in student debt crippling the futures of millions of Americans. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State, with a joint appointment in the Department of Geoscience and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He's received many honors and awards, including the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Outstanding Publication Award, selected 
by Scientific America as one of the 50 leading visionaries in science and technology. And additionally, he contributed to, with other IPCC authors, to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. And in 2020, he was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. His latest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And he's the co-author with the former Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, of an article at The Guardian, How Australia's Electoral System allowed voters to finally impose a ceasefire in the climate wars. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Mann. Oh, thanks, Ian. It's good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Michael. And you spent some time in Australia in the last couple of years. And the election in Australia is good news uh, in an otherwise bleak uh, global environment in as much as a climate-denying, born-again character, similar, I suppose, in a way to Mike Pence, in total denial about global warming in the pocket of the coal industry. And he was actually put into power by the Murdoch press. And he's such a colorless character that the Murdoch press, his name is Scott Morrison, the Murdoch press actually came up with his nickname, ScoMo. So I think you could fairly say, surely, that this election uh, in Australia, this upset where a Labour government got in with a, with enormous help from independents and Greens, is in fact a rebuke to Murdoch. How would you describe it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I did spend some time there just a, a couple of years ago. I actually arrived, you know, ironically, just in time to witness one of the worst climate disasters play out in history, uh, what they now refer to as the Black Summer in Australia, uh, many of you, uh, your, your listeners will remember the, uh, you know, and, and will have seen those uh, bleak scenes coming out of Australia with kangaroos in these forest fires. Um, it was, you know, this unprecedented extreme climate event, this summer of unprecedented heat and drought and these bushfires that spread out across the country. And I think it really helped create a new level of awareness for Australians um, when it comes to the climate crisis, that this wasn't some far off, you know, threat, that it was here now in the form of these deadly and disastrous extreme weather events that they're seeing play out, uh, play out in real time from the droughts and floods and, and you know, from the, the, the drought and heat and wildfires to the floods that they've seen in some of those same regions recently. And so I think that it really, you know, there was a tipping point in public consciousness and I witnessed it and I experienced it with, uh, you know, these fellow Australians. I sort of felt like I'd become, you know, a, um, uh, you know, an Australian myself by living through that with them and spent a lot of my time, as it turns out, rather than doing the research that I had planned to do there, um, really talking about the climate crisis and trying to communicate it to the public and policymakers. And in the process, I befriended the uh, former prime minister, um, Malcolm Turnbull, who was actually, and this will be confusing for some of your listeners, uh, from the Liberal Party, but the Liberal Party in Australia is actually the, the center-right. It's the conservative party. And Malcolm Turnbull, you might think of as sort of like a New England Republican, um, an old-school conservative who believed in environmental preservation. And You know, he ended up um, really taking on a very important role in this election, actually opposing his own party and encouraging people to vote in a climate-friendly government, to to vote out Scott Morrison and instead uh, put, 
you know, the, the labor's, uh, you know, the labor party and greens and independents in a position to, to do something on climate. And so it was a really important victory. It wouldn't have been possible without what they call uh, their, the teal uh, independents. These are sort of like moderate, um, you know, independents in, 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 here in the U.S., that, uh, for example, might have some conservative fiscal views, but um, really prioritize uh, action on the environment and, 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 and prioritize sustainability. And they sort of, um, you know, uh, ran in some of these conservative seats and took them away from, you know, conservative prime ministers. And so now there's this alliance between these teal independents, labor and greens, as you alluded to, and a real possibility now for a country that was the laggard among, you know, uh, the Western countries of the world, Australia, now is really at the front of the pack in terms of what they are seeking to do in the way of climate policy. And the new Labour government, led by Anthony Albanese, is committed to a 43% reduction of emissions by 2030. Right. And, of course, Malcolm Turnbull, when he was Prime Minister, committed at the Paris talks in 2015, committed to a target of 26 to 28%. And then his yep. successor, Scott Morrison, who just got voted out, it was in again in the pocket of the coal companies, etc., and put into power by Rupert Murdoch. He pulled out of the 2020 Glasgow COP talks, which really upset Australia's allies, the United States and the UK. But what's interesting about the victory of the Teal, who obviously won largely because of this different voting system, this ranked choice voting system, which we we need to talk about. They basically won the Liberal Party's safest and wealthiest seats all of them, and now they're held by independents, all of whom are women. And there are 13 women now in uh, the cabinet of the new government. Yeah, and you know, Ian, it, to, to me it's sort of interesting. In, in some ways it reminds me of what happened, um, you know, a couple elections ago, uh, or actually the, no, the, the last election in, in California, where a lot of those Republican um, seats in Orange County and other areas of Southern California uh, finally were won by Democrats because of this sort of shift in the electorate, um, you know, an electorate that really does care about things like climate action. And what was so profound in my view, and really, as you allude to, has some lessons for us here in the United States, was the way that, you know, the, these independents, of course, you know, uh, running on a, you know, on a, on, a, on a climate agenda, were able to take away some of these conservative seats and really, in the end, defeat the Murdoch media you know, machine, which has, you know, despite, you know, the influence that we might think they have here in the United States with Fox News and the Wall Street Journal and New York Post and, you know, the Murdoch media sort of machine is, is, a, is a formidable force here in American politics, but it's even more so in Australia. Murdoch has essentially a stranglehold on their entire media with the exception of the Australian Broadcast Corporation, their public um, you know, uh, television station, and a few other independents, a, a real sort of stranglehold. And yet, you know, um, despite the, the leverage that Murdoch has on their politics and, and, and their uh, sort of media environment, they, you know, these independents and in, in labor was able to defeat the Murdoch uh, machine, and they were able to do so in part, as you alluded to, because of ranked choice voting, which we have 
you know, in a couple states here in the United States and Alaska and Maine, um, not red states, uh, you know, sort of, I mean, not, not a blue state, sort of a red state and a purple state. Um, and there's, you know, some degree of support uh, across partisan lines for a ranked choice voting system here in the United States where, you know, as you know, you can, there's sort of a consensus that's reached. You know, you can vote for a first choice as well as a second choice. And if somebody, if there really isn't a consensus on the first choice, but a lot of people choose the same second choice, you can get somebody, you know, who might not win in a simple two-party sort of uh, system uh, you can, uh, with with sort of conventional voting, you, you can actually sort of sneak up the middle there. And, and that's what happened here. And so, it, it, to me, it provides a possible path forward here in the United States if we could move towards something like ranked choice. Now, they've got other things. They have compulsory voting, which makes a huge difference. And they also have a system that's resistant to, you know, sort of uh, gerrymandering. And so, uh, Australia, in some sense, is sort of a best-case scenario for what we might be able to do here in the United States, but it's something to strive towards, particularly with respect to, you know, this uh, notion of uh, ranked voting, which is something that I think we really need to push for here, you know, at the state level and at the national level. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State, with a joint appointment in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He, along with other IPCC authors, were the, awarded the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize and in 2020 was elected to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. His latest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And he is the co-author with the former Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, of an article at The Guardian, How Australia's Electoral System Allowed Voters to Finally Impose a Ceasefire in the Climate Wars. So if, if, if America had the Murdoch domination of the press like Australia had, you just have to imagine what it would be like having Fox News and the Wall Street Journal control two-thirds of the entire media right. in this country. So that's, that should give the, our American audience an idea yep. of how powerful the brainwashing effect of it is. But nevertheless, uh, there was this defiance of Murdoch and his global warming denial agenda. And it's largely, as you point out, happened because of this ranked choice voting or what they call in Australia preferential voting. Yep. So this would mean, for example, that in this November election, Republicans who are unhappy about Trump's control of the GOP, if we had ranked choice voting, they could vote, you know, either as a first or a second choice, and that would give them a place to go, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Because a lot of them don't want to vote Democrat, you know, so... That, that's exactly right. And, and yet there are an increasing number of sort of old school conservatives are uncomfortable with, you know, the direction that their party has taken. Ranked choice would give them an opportunity to, to vote for somebody, you know, more moderate than what, what the current Republican Party looks like. And the Greens did very well, too, right? I mean, they've done well in Germany. Now, they've, you know, they control the foreign ministry's, minister's portfolio. Yeah, they, they have. And as some of the, the seats, it, t- it took a while for them to sort of tally all the votes. It looked like um, that, that there wouldn't be enough votes for labor to win it outright, that they'd have to form an alliance with Greens and independents. And I think that would have been really healthy, particularly on issues like climate, where the Labor Party really hasn't been as much out in front on that issue as the Green Party. As it turns out, it looks like Labor has won enough seats to to take 
control of the government outright. I think that's a second best scenario, but the scenario I really would have liked to have seen would have been a scenario where they did have to form a coalition with Greens and independents. I think that that would, would probably lead to an even more proactive climate agenda. Well, of course, the Green Party in the U.S. is, is all but have actually acted more as a spoiler than and they have not right. been able to build. And obviously we do have a system, a two-party system, a kind of Tweedledum yeah. and Tweedledee, which really does make it difficult for third parties to get traction. But if you had ranked choice voting, that would make all the difference, wouldn't it? It absolutely would. Right now, if you vote for the Greens, you know, the Green Party here in the United States, um, unfortunately, you might be playing the role of spoiler, and you might end up giving control to Republicans. And that's the problem with, with our system. You know, you really don't have, you can't vote for, for a third party um, it, without some potential repercussions for, you know, without potentially playing into the hands of, you know, the, the, um, the, the party that you don't want to see. Yeah, well, that, that happened. That happened with Al Gore in in Florida, led That's to George right. W. Bush, and it happened um, with Jill Stein in those three key swing right. states that Trump won: uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And she took more votes away from Hillary than Trump won by. So that yeah, is yeah. So ranked choice is, would really help help out there. Yep, would would have done it. Well. I thank you for joining us, Michael, and for the good news on the change for the better in Australia, on the awareness now that Australia, which has been a real laggard in global warming, is now on board, and in fact, if not leading the pack, and filling us in on how ranked choice voting could give Americans real choice and invigorate American democracy instead of having the sterile system that we have. So I thank you for joining us. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Mann, who's a distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State with joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He's received many honors and awards, including the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration's Outstanding Publication Award. He was selected by the Scientific America as one of 50 leading visionaries in science and technology. And additionally, he contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. And in 2020, he was elected to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. His latest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And he's the co-author with the former Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, of an article at The Guardian, How Australia's Electoral System Allowed Voters to Finally Impose a Ceasefire in the Climate Wars. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining how other countries have responded to similar horrific mass shootings by adopting measures that have radically reduced gun deaths. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Sydney, Australia, is Philip Alpers, a professor and founding director of gunpolicy.org, a global project at the University of Sydney School of Public Health, which compares armed violence, firearm legislation, and injury prevention across 250 jurisdictions worldwide. 
He has an article at CNN, This is what happened when three nations that experienced mass shooting did something about it. Welcome to Background Briefing, Philip Alpers. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And here in the United States, of course, nobody's expecting a lot from the U.S. Senate, although apparently there is some activity led by Senator Murphy, uh, which is the Republican leader or minority leader, Mitch McConnell, has apparently engaged in. So something may actually happen following these two horrible mass shootings in Buffalo and then in Uvalde, Texas. But um, what you pointed out in your article is that in Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, things happen very quickly after mass shootings, and they have been long-lasting and incredibly significant. So these are all English-speaking countries we're talking about. From your perspective in Australia, why do you think America is so different? We have more guns than people in this country. Two words, American exceptionalism. Um, you You diverted from the global standard of gun laws back at the beginning of the last century. And whereas uh, the great majority of countries around the world, uh, about 150 of them, accept three pillars of gun control. One is that the owner of the object, the gun owner, is licensed. The second is that the object itself, the weapon, is registered. And the third is in, as I say, in about 150 countries around the world, that the um, the possession of a firearm is regarded as a conditional privilege. Now, all of these things can be uh, direct parallels with what you and Amer- Americans and everybody else in the world does with automobiles. You license the driver, you register the vehicle itself, and the license is conditional. If you do something really stupid, you can have the license taken away from you. And those three pillars of gun control are universal, almost universal around the world. Only the United States does not hew to any of those nationally, and only a very few states license or register partially a certain uh, type of gun. So it's entirely the choice of Americans to be totally different from the rest of the world. With deadly consequences. Well, um, I'm, I'm an academic. I can't say that your Second Amendment causes um, this because uh, we, ha- we are completely unable to do a, an experiment that would, quote, prove, unquote it. And that is to have one country that has uh, this and another country that doesn't and compare them and, and suffer the deaths in one jurisdiction and not the deaths in another. You can't do that type of experiment in science. Um, it's playing with people's lives. So you can't actually say that the Second Amendment caused uh, your gun deaths in, in recent years. Um, but I think a lot of people infer it. Well, it was the Supreme Court under a ruling championed by Justice Scalia that turned the Second Amendment on its head. They put the cart before the horse and the idea that the state shall have a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state 
has been relegated to the back burner where the possession to keep and have firearms is now the focus and we are neither free yeah, but, nor it, secure and that's that's it seems to me that there's a failure in this country for the politicians who've allowed an extreme right-wing minority to capture the second amendment and to confiscate it and to use it or abuse it or misuse it so i don't understand why the real reading of the second amendment cannot be restored which poses the question are we free and are we secure which we're certainly not because you can't go to a cinema you can't go to a mall you can't go to a church anymore without the fear of being massacred by somebody with an assault rifle if you read Justice Scalia's decision, um, you'll see that it's absolutely not what many people pretend it is. Justice Scalia was very careful in saying that this decision does not stop um, states and the federal government from passing legislation to limit arms. And it is, uh, it's, there was a phrase that he used, I think it was a weapon of special destruction or something. I, I won't quote the exact phrase. Um, now, that could be legislated and that you could interpret that to be an assault rifle. And so uh, the people who, who say that the Second Amendment uh, decision from Scalia is absolute are absolutely wrong and they should read it. Now, as for freedom... Um, I can assure you that we, by that I mean Australians, New Zealanders, New Zealanders, Canadians, uh, Brits, people who speak the same language, same have the same religion, basically are the same colour, basically, uh, similar countries around the world. We feel just as free as you do. In fact, I feel free. I've lived in the United States, and I feel freer here because I don't have the fear of dying by gunshot tomorrow morning. Um, and that is something that, that's why it's a source of considerable national pride in Australia and New Zealand now, um, not just people who don't shoot, but people who do shoot. I know a lot of shooters, and I have been a shooter myself, um, who are absolutely proud of what Australia did and will tell their American friends, look what we did, we are proud of it. And so it's not... Um, we, we, we don't feel any less free than you do, believe me. And again, I'm speaking with Philip Alpers, who is a professor and founding director of GunPolicy.org, a global project at the University of Sydney School of Public Health, which compares armed violence, firearm legislation and injury prevention across 250 jurisdictions worldwide. And he has an article at CNN, This is what happened when three nations that experienced mass shootings did something about it. Well, then let's talk about how... You came to be proud of what the government did, and you have to go back to 1996 when a young man killed 35 people, mostly holiday makers, in the island of Tasmania and injured 18. And shortly thereafter, very shortly thereafter, a newly elected Conservative Prime Minister, John Howard, banned guns altogether. I mean, banned assault rifles and had, had a buyback program. Uh, well, where well over a million guns were handed in for destruction. So let's talk about that. What? Um, how did that happen, and uh, why can't it happen here? 
John Howard, as you say, was the most conservative prime minister we've had in years. He came to power and within only a couple of weeks was confronted with this dreadful situation where a, a, a young man who um, had no previous criminal history, no previous history of, of mental illness, uh, but was able in the very slackly um, legislated state of Tasmania, probably the, the freest gun laws in the country, was able to obtain a semi-automatic rifle, an MAR-15, which you'll be familiar with. He uh, went into a, a tourist cafe and at a, a holiday site, and in the first 90 seconds, he shot 20 people dead with only 29 shots. Now, that was in 90 seconds. Killed 35, injured anything between 18 and, and 22, depending on how seriously you consider. Now, that caused such an incredible ruckus in this country. Uh, the public just rose in, uh, in their millions. And it wasn't just Port Arthur. You see, Port Arthur was just the last straw for Australia because we'd had, in the previous decade, we had had 105 people killed, victims killed in mass shootings. It wasn't the only mass shootings. We've had 14 mass shootings in that period. And to Australians, it was just enough is enough. And they rose. The two main political parties immediately got together. There was no question at all that it was going to be bipartisan. Everybody agreed. And within 12 days, the prime minister had uh, completely changed the the landscape in Australia. Like the United States, we, are, uh, we have a federal system. We have eight states and territories. And what he did, in effect, was to bring the premiers and the police ministers from all of those states and territories together into one room, and he pushed them to all adopt new gun laws in all of their own jurisdictions. And basically, he bullied them. He, he threatened... We have a, quite a powerful gun lobby here in Australia, and he just outpaced them, outwitted them, outmaneuvered. It was very, very quick. Um, and he threatened those uh, politicians with a national referendum to strip the states and territories of the right to set their own gun laws. And that was, they knew he'd, he'd win. The, the, the polling, the opinion polling was going 90 to 95% in favor of a total ban on all semi-automatic weapons, which are, of course, the weapon of choice of the mass killer. So he got that agreement. It started out as a gentleman's agreement, but then every state and territory changed its gun laws to a national standard. And that national standard banned all semi-automatics, as I say, uh, call, it called for a, a buyback. And that buyback was funded by the federal government. It cost about $15 per taxpayer to confiscate uh, two-thirds of a million um, light, um, uh, semi-automatics, the, the newly banned guns. And the threat, of course, was that if you didn't give up your gun, you would, uh, there was a jail term at, at the top of the penalty list. Um, and the extraordinary thing was that not only did 700,000 guns uh, were surrendered, the, the prohibit, prohibited guns, but 300,000 other guns were surrendered um, when there was no financial incentive. The owners just gave them up simply because they thought it was the right thing to do. And over a period of um, several years since Port Arthur, 
uh, Australia has surrendered and destroyed well over a million firearms. Now, it's true that Australia during that time also imported well over a million firearms because, of course, these guns were largely used by farmers and so on and had to be replaced. You had to replace your semi-automatic with a single-shot gun. So Australia imported all of these uh, nearly um, over a million guns, but at the same time, during the same period, the population of Australia increased by 25%. Now, the end result is that Australians now have 23% fewer guns per capita than they had before the gun laws were enacted. In, in effect, Australia surrendered, Australian shooters, either compulsorily or voluntarily, surrendered one third of their country's firearms, all the guns in the country, one third. And, but there are still plenty in the country. I mean, tens of thousands are imported every year. There are plenty of legitimate uses for arms in this country, farmers, sport shooters, um, any number of people have a good reason for a gun. And so our, um, our farmers do the same as they always did. Our, our shooters do the same as they always did. In fact, it's a very vibrant sport shooting community in Australia. Um, but Australians are also very, very proud of what they did, despite a very, very small and vociferous minority, as you have in the United States. Uh, rubbishing it at all, all turns, but they've been completely defeated, and there is no question that Australians want to retain these laws. And the country's gun homicide rate is now 33 times lower than the United States, and ever since the mass shooting in Tasmania in 1996, in the 22 years that followed, there have been no uh, mass shootings in Australia. Let, let's also turn to uh, the other country, New Zealand, along with the United Kingdom that you mentioned. They had a very strong gun lobby in New Zealand until this most recent hideous uh, shooting that happened in March of 2019 when an Australian visitor who was denied a, an assault weapon in his own country exploited New Zealand's lack of regulation to gain firearm license and convert it into um, essentially um, automatic assault rifle. He shot 51 people and injured 40 in a mosque in Christchurch. A similar thing seemed to have happened in New Zealand, but they had a bigger gun lobby to overcome, did they not? Yes, and I can vouch for that. I am a New Zealander, and when I first started, and I, I was also a shooter for many years in New Zealand, but when I stood up and... and started saying things I've been saying for the last 30 years, um, I was very heavily attacked by the gun lobby. You know, uh, in the New Zealand gun lobby, for some reason, is more vicious even than the Australians. I had, uh, I, at one stage, I was trying to get home uh, in, in the afternoon in time to be first to the letterbox before the children got there, just in case there was any, were any more feces in the mail. And it, it, was a, it was a dreadful um, indictment of our gun culture. Australia, sorry, New Zealand, has more guns per capita than, uh, than even, well, certainly far more than the United Kingdom, but also more than Australia. I mean, even the police are still un, remain routinely unarmed in New Zealand. And so it, it was a... Um, uh, it was a very, very hard time. And when finally that awful shooting happened, 
everybody picked up on the fact that New Zealand had ignored its gun laws for far too long, that it's allowed its gun policy to be dictated by the police and the gun lobby, and most of the police were card-carrying members of the gun lobby uh, in that particular section. Um, And so it was an instant reaction. Once again, uh, uh, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern realised that the, the, the only way to, to do it was to do it very quickly. Um, you have to, to, to uh, avoid defeat by the gun lobby. You have to do it very quickly because otherwise there's all this, oh, let's not have a knee-jerk reaction. Let's talk about it. Let's have another commission. Let's have a, a commission of inquiry. Let's, let's delay, delay, delay. And this is what the gun lobby had done for 30 or 40 years in New Zealand and very successfully dictated gun policy simply by delay. Um, and that's what they tried to do in Australia, but of course they were, um, they were beaten there as well. So it, it is terrifying to think that, well, first it's very disappointing to know that what it took in New Zealand was not common sense, but a massive massacre. Now, if we look at America, you might have the same situation. Um, unfortunately, ideology trumps the evidence in the United States. And as I say, I've worked there, so I, I know I know uh, exactly the reasons that Americans tend not to follow the rest of the world, um, the Second Amendment and so on. But uh, it's... It's so hard. I mean, imagine the scale, the enormity of the massacre that it will require to provide the tipping point that the United States politicians need to start defending their children, start defending the next generations from all of these shooters. It is just horrifying to think of how big it'll have to be before something changes. So just in the last couple of minutes, you, the other country, of course, that you mentioned in your article at CNN is uh, the UK, where there was a, a massacre in Dunblane, Scotland in 1996. A gunman killed 16 children and one teacher, and the British did do a buyback, and it's reduced the deaths enormously in the UK since then. But there's also Argentina, Belgium, Germany, Sweden, and Norway all of which suffered these kind of watershed multiple shootings moments, and they have collectively destroyed more than 800,000 firearms. So the global score is there, and the U.S. definitely fails the grade enormously, I would add. It's, it's not just the it's not those English-speaking or, or culturally very similar countries like Europe and the ones we normally compare ourselves with. Um, hundreds, dozens of countries, scores of countries around the world have had great um, success in destroying arms, usually after conflict. Um, after a war in West Africa, for example, um, they'll have a, a buyback, a, a disarmament system, and they'll destroy many, many more guns than, let's say, European countries have. Um but and it's it's just but the problem is it's it's a drop in the bucket against the the global um, number of arms and that is around about a billion 
firearms in the hands of, um, sorry, a billion firearms in the world, and 85% of those are in civilian hands. So it's it's a global problem, and America, Australia, New Zealand are not alone. They've all there is no single solution. Um, there's no one uh, one solution fits all. Um, every country has to do what it what it can do and what it what it must do. Um, but there is a, a, a considerable drive around the world to reduce the availability of lethal weapons, um, knowing that um, that does it's been proven uh, in many studies. Not proven. I shouldn't use that word. It has been shown in many studies that um, the more guns you have, the, the less safe you are as a population. Now, um, I know this is roundly rejected by people who, many people who own guns, they think they're safer having a gun. And yet the science shows you that you're at far more risk having a gun in the home than you are not having a gun in the home. And the... Um, but, uh, you know, there is such a movement against science and evidence, in, especially in the United States at the moment, that it's, it's hard to see coming out of that. It's, it's hard to see how we'll return to reason where science is, is admirable for having done so many things like uh, curing diseases, uh, reducing the road toll, reducing the toll of tobacco um, disease, even HIV AIDS, which, which there was a, a very similar ideological block with treating HIV AIDS. But once that ideology, that religio religious objections to helping people who were seen to be different, uh, once that was overcome, America led the world, as it did with road injuries, in applying very standard public health uh, policies, very well-proven um, in initiatives that greatly reduced all of those road tolls. And Americans are, are hugely admired around the world for their, uh, their efficiency, their skill, uh, their intelligence in being great solutions to bear on, uh, on threatening problems like putting um, child-proof lids onto poison bottles. And and yet, your country doesn't seem able to see that those same solutions can be applied in much the same way to firearms. Um, and it's only when that realization hits America that I think something is going to change. I think it's inevitable that it will change, but it won't change in my lifetime. Well, Philip Alpers, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Philip Alpers, who's a professor and founding director of GunPolicy.org, a global project at the University of Sydney School of Public Health, which compares armed violence, firearm legislation, and injury prevention across 250 jurisdictions worldwide. And he has an article at CNN, This is what happened when three nations that experienced mass shootings did something about it. And he joined us from Sydney, Australia. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking at how the White House is forgiving $5.8 billion in student debt for 560,000 students defrauded by the defunct Corinthian Colleges. 
and look into what Biden might do to relieve the $1.7 trillion in student debt, crippling the futures of millions of Americans. To the town of Alfreya rode a stranger one fine day. Hardly spoke to folks around him, didn't have too much to say. No one dared to ask his business, no one dared to make a slip. The stranger there among them had a big iron on his hip, big iron on his hip. It was early in the morning when he rode into the town. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Halpin, a senior fellow at Republican Report. He was previously founding executive director of the American Constitution Society, White House speechwriter and special assistant for national security affairs to President Clinton, and a counsel to the Senate Intelligence Committee. His latest articles at Republic Report are With Debt Relief for Corinthian Students Finally Here, Time to Stop Funding Predatory Colleges, and New University of Phoenix Head ran college that closed after fraud suit. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Halpern. Thanks, Ian. So today, Vice President Kamala Harris announced uh, that the White House is cancelling $5.6 billion of unpaid loans for 560,000 students of the defunct uh, for-profit college, Corinthian Colleges, which went uh, bankrupt in, I think, 2015. So... I guess the point that you're making is that these uh, students that have been victimized by these for-profit colleges and deceived, overcharged, and undereducated, the system itself is not changing, right? You write in your article at Republic Report, it makes no sense as the Department of Education is at last providing serious relief to Corinthian students for it to continue sending billions of federal aid to schools very much like Corinthian for it to continue to create another generation of victims who will rightly demand debt cancellation down the road. So um, mixed results, I guess. Is that what you, how would you, how would you put it? It's a good start. You know, even this debt relief of about $10,000 per student doesn't come close to making these students who were lied to and deceived and, and, and undereducated, overcharged, it doesn't make them whole because it doesn't give them back all the hours they spent at the bus stop waiting to go to school or not being with their families or not helping their children uh, learn to read. Um, It doesn't give them back all the private loans that they took out in addition to the federal loans, which are much higher interest rates. So it's just, it is a start and it's just one school. And the point I'm making is there are other defunct schools like ITT Tech that were just as bad, where still there is not this kind of broad debt relief for the defrauded students. And even worse, as you said, There are schools right now, same business model of Corinthian, bad deal, and the only way they can sell it is through deception. And the Department of Education is still sending money and therefore, you know, giving students the signal, this is an okay school to go to. And those students are going to end up in the same place as Corinthian. They, They ended up without the careers they sought. All they ended up with is debt. And it is just an awful thing that they were misled by their governments, let down, because the government said this was an okay school to go to. And what they're left with is just lives of despair because they tried, they thought they were getting into something great, a chance at a career, a better life for themselves. And they ended up what deceived, humiliated, and worse off. So it's good the government's doing this for the Corinthian students, but they need to do it for more students and they need to stop creating new generations 
of victims by keeping these bad schools in business. So the $5.6 billion in unpaid loans for the 560,000 students uh, who got ripped off by Corinthian colleges, that's taxpayer money, right? So how do they operate these for-profit colleges where they get kids in, defraud them, make all these promises, uh, and then saddle them with a lifetime of debt and a worthless diploma? So just give us a brief sketch of the methodology of why taxpayer money is going to these fraudsters. I've always thought that this issue, which I know you work on day and night, David, is an important issue because it's kind of the poster child, if you will, of what's wrong with Washington, how lobbyists and former congressmen and others can keep a crooked system going and in all of this, what, $30 billion a year, at least maybe $40 billion, I don't know what the total of taxpayer money that's wasted and destroys all these kids' lives and makes a bunch of crooks rich, that, could all, that money could be going to community colleges uh, where you, you'd have a real education and they're terribly under-resourced. So that's why I think it's an important issue. So just tell us about the methodology of how the government subsidizes this racket? Sure. Well, it was a good intention that students should be given federal grants and loans to go to college if they uh, didn't have the resources to pay for it themselves. Unfortunately, college has gotten more expensive and the amount of grants and loans has gone down. So college is more and more expensive and students are ending up with more and more debt even to go to legitimate colleges. The worst part of it is that anyone who can get an accreditor organization, these private agencies, to say that they are a college, a legitimate college, are eligible for these federal grants and loans. The accreditors do not do a good job actually monitoring these schools, either the educational quality or the crookedness of the operators. For-profit institutions are allowed in the mix uh, by law, and those for-profit institutions have a, an obligation to make money, not to help students. And so their temptation is to enroll anyone with a pulse, to tell them lies to get them to come in, to spend more on recruiting and less on education. And as you said, whenever someone tries to step up like the Obama administration did and the Biden administration is starting to do to make rules to try to hold these schools accountable and separate the good ones from the bad ones, they hire every lobbyist in Washington, Democrats and Republicans, former members of Congress, former White House officials, to lobby and say everything's fine, to bribe basically the politicians to support them as they pretty much own the whole Republican Party now, which was supposed to be about small government and accountability. Um, and, and that's where you get in a situation where they basically can act with impunity. And I have personally brought, since uh, Joe Biden was elected, dozens of whistleblowers to the department to tell about violations of law and abuses of students at existing schools and said, you've got to shut down these schools. You've got to make the case against them and get them out of the federal program. But the way the system is set up, these schools are almost like they have to be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt before you can take away the federal aid, whereas it should be, you're a federal contractor. Are you helping students or hurting them? Are you helping taxpayers or hurting them? If you're hurting them, you should be out of the program. 
And again, I'm speaking with David Halpin, a senior fellow at Republic Report. He was previously founding executive director of the American Constitution Society, White House speechwriter and special assistant for national security affairs to President Clinton and counsel to the Senate Intelligence Committee. And his latest articles at Republic Report are with debt relief for Corinthian students finally here, time to stop funding predatory colleges and new University of Phoenix head ran college that closed after fraud suit. And you've uh, succeeded in getting this guy, George Burnett, uh, who was involved with a couple of these for-profit college fraudsters, uh, Alta Colleges, operated by Westwood College. And he uh, was then appointed by... University of Phoenix. University of Phoenix. And when you pointed out this guy's track record, uh, he just resigned from University of Phoenix. But that doesn't stop the University of Phoenix from operating, does it? They'll they'll find somebody else, right? They're a part of Correct. this same... Now, and I don't, want to, I don't know if I could really take all the credit for what happened here, but I did. The day it was announced, the University of Phoenix was hiring this gentleman um, to be their new president. I pointed out he was the president. He was the head of Westwood College. Westwood College had a criminal justice program in Chicago that was particularly bad, told students that went, they only admitted one out of every 10 or so students. And when they did, they had a celebration in the office for that student. That was a lie, they admitted every student. And they, and they told them they'd be police officers from the program, and they weren't police officers from the program. So that guy was who the University of Phoenix, of every person in the country, the largest for-profit college in the country, which at one time was getting $4 billion a year from taxpayers, picked to be the president. So I wrote an article about it, and a few months later, he is out of the job. I don't know if my article had anything to do with it, but I hope it did. So. Going back to Vice President Kamala Harris's announcement today to cancel $5.6 billion in unpaid loans for 560,000 students of the defunct for-profit Corinthian colleges, there's not a lot more that came out of the announcements today, but the Republicans on the Hill are fighting against the possibility that Biden might use his executive authority to relieve student debt on what is it, 1.6 trillion, 1.7 trillion, I Correct. think, total. John Toon is arguing uh, that, oh, you can't relieve student debt because it's unfair to those who paid off their student debt, which is an absolutely absurd argument. And, and Senator Grassley is trying to look for ways to stop Biden from using his executive authority. So give us, a, in the last few minutes, give us a brief sketch of what's happening on Capitol Hill in terms of whether or not there's going to be some justice for students and getting rid of these crooked colleges or or not? Well, the Republicans don't mind giving away money to the rich in terms of tax cuts, but they do think somehow these students are undeserving. These students, I know you had Barmak Nasirian as your guest recently, as he explained it very well, the government you know, really did these students, a generation, a couple of generations of students, a disservice. Because we, in the old days, there was a chance a working person could get an education of state schools were more affordable. Um, the, the Pell Grants, the federal aid was more in line with helping you actually pay for school. But then we just sort of changed the proposition around. We cut federal aid education under Reagan and subsequent presidents. And we basically said, you know, go ahead and borrow a ton of money. But it was just an untenable situation. Too much money was borrowed. People couldn't afford to pay it back. There's never going to be a perfect solution to how to provide some debt relief, but we need some real debt relief for these folks, and we need to reform the system to make college generally more affordable. But the biggest victims, as you suggested, 
were these people who went to uh, for-profit schools. They were completely outmatched, many the first in their family to go to college against corporations that were designed in all respects to separate them from their money through deception, coercion, and other tactics. They were call centers, not colleges, and they continue to be that, just basically a fake college attached to a call center. And in that situation, people, these victims were just set up for failure, these people, these Americans, these hardworking people, and it's just a terrible story. And today there's one step with one particularly awful school towards making things right, but we've got a long way to go to fix the problem of the for-profits and to fix the overall problem of unaffordable higher education and giving people the chance to actually improve themselves through education, getting a decent chance at a, at a new career, and not having to deal with the burden of debt that will uh, follow them their whole lives. So in the last minute, will Biden pull the trigger and forgive student loans? And what kind of amount? 10000 doesn't seem to be a much, very much. I think we may well end up on 10000 And there's also going to be this complicated thing of trying to figure out how to verify whether wealthier people shouldn't be getting the break. Uh, so there are, there are some hard questions with debt relief. Um, but I do think that the... The idea of begrudging people who, who've been really let down, like I said, by the system, a chance at a fresh start or at least a fresher start is just uh, an awful lot of selfishness and, and churlishness by a bunch of politicians who get all kinds of free stuff themselves all day long. Well, David Halpin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me, Ian. And again, I may speak with David Harpin, a senior fellow at Republic Report. He was previously the founding executive director of the American Constitutional Society, White House speechwriter and special assistant for national security affairs to President Clinton and counsel to the Senate Intelligence Committee. And his latest articles at Republic Report are, with debt relief for Corinthian students finally here, time to stop funding predatory colleges, and new University of Phoenix head ran college that closed after fraud suit. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now.
One more light goes out in the 